Morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are gathered here this morning as just one tiny fraction of your people across the globe, one tiny fraction of those who are privileged to have been reconciled to you, a tiny fraction of those who have been blessed to have heard the voice of Christ calling to us, who have been awakened from our deadly slumber and sin, who have been given life in him and who are worshiping you in the power of the Spirit this morning. We are so grateful that that is the case, that we join with a chorus of many across this earth and in the heavenly places praising you this morning. We are also grateful, Father, that now we have the privilege of opening your word and considering glorious things. And as we we typically do, Father, we... We open the word with an understanding and a confession in our hearts that we need your help to understand these things and to not just to understand them, but also to embrace them and to apply them rightly. And so we ask for that. We ask for your help, that your Holy Spirit would be active among us, helping us to understand your word, to embrace it, to apply it. We pray for that with great boldness because you've shown yourself to be kind and generous to us in the gift of Jesus Christ and in the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And so we look forward with great expectancy to what you'll do in these few moments in the Word and and even as we leave here, the gift that you will give us in these few minutes. We thank you and we pray again and in the name of our brother, and our King, Jesus. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. The last few chapters of Mark have shown Jesus making His his slow march toward the cross. And so we are still awaiting Jesus' crucifixion. The last couple of chapters have shown increasing tension between Jesus and the authorities in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem, as we'll see. As you're finding your place there in Mark 13, I'd ask you to stand with me. We're going to read just the first four verses to set the stage here. We'll spend our time this morning looking at verses 1 through 13. We'll just read the first four verses. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1 and and reading through verse 4. And as he, as Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You may be seated. So, the Lord has just predicted the destruction of the temple. And the disciples want to know when that will happen and what will signal that that destruction is about to happen. Now, why would they want to know that? They want to know because they don't want to be around when it happens. The, the Jews have enough history with this kind of thing that they know that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. The, the, the leveling of a city is accompanied by great suffering. As we have witnessed in, in recent months, as we have watched from afar, Russia invading Ukraine. You, you don't want to be present for these kinds of things. So the disciples, they don't want to be there when, when the temple is leveled. Now, Jesus does eventually answer their question, but in our text this morning, verses 1-13, through 13, He first gives them instruction about how to conduct themselves in the run up to that destruction. Now, the destruction of the temple relative to our place in history is, is a past tense event. It took place in 70 A.D. And yet, the Lord's instruction here is pertinent for us because the Lord has also predicted that He intends to judge the entire world. And we likewise would like to know, when is that going to happen? And what is the sign that's going to, to come, that, that that's about to happen? We, we want to know, Lord, show us what is going to signal that, that all of that judgment is, is, is about to happen so that, that perhaps we can avoid some of the suffering. The Bible indicates that, that, that what we really need to know is not so much all of the signs leading up to it, but what we really need to know is the kind of instruction that Jesus gives here in verses 1-13. through 13. We need to know how to conduct ourselves in the run up to that final judgment. So, in this chapter, Jesus talks for the most part about events that are past tense for us, and yet the application is absolutely useful to us right where we are. How should we conduct ourselves as we await the final judgment? Now, why would we say that the bulk of this chapter is about the destruction of the temple? Well, the context indicates that that is the case. This section of Mark, which it began in chapter 11, has shown a steady increase in tension between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. Tension which is leading toward, as we'll, we'll see, is leading toward Jesus' crucifixion and the leader's eventual judgment. Jesus' crucifixion and the leader's eventual judgment. And so we have seen over these last couple of chapters, Jesus cursing the fig tree, which was something like a parable of judgment, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, the parable of the wicked tenants, the confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in chapter 12, all of this pointing toward the impending death of Christ and judgment for the Jewish establishment. The very next event that happens 
in this sequence of events is this conversation between Jesus and a few of His disciples in chapter 13. Now, scan back through these first four verses with me and note the markers indicating that this whole conversation of chapter 13 takes place in the literary and geographic context of the temple. First, look at verse 1. They come out of the temple. Second, the conversation begins by one of the disciples calling Jesus' attention back to the temple and its stones. Third, in verse 2, Jesus responds about the temple, predicting its destruction. Fourth, in verse 3, they sit down opposite the the Mount Mount of Olives, explicitly opposite the temple. It seems that Mark Mark wants us as the readers to know that the following questions and answer come as Jesus and the disciples are sitting facing the temple. Fifth, in verse 4, the four disciples ask, when will these things be? What are these things? Well, contextually, the nearest referent is what Jesus just said about the destruction of the temple. In light of all of these contextual markers, if we want to say that what follows is something other than an answer about the destruction of the temple, we have a heavy burden to overcome. Everything contextually is pointing toward this is a conversation about the destruction of the temple. Now, Earlier I said that most of chapter 13 is about the destruction of the temple. How much is most? Well, Let me tell you. It's up to verse 23. So what we'll find is that up to verse 23 is, is all a reference to the events leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I will argue that from verse 24 on is about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. So again, what have the disciples asked? They, they have asked, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, verses 5 through 8, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is essentially saying, look, don't be deceived by non-signs. They want a sign. When are these things about to be? In verses 5 through 8, he says, don't be deceived by non-signs. So he's saying there's going to be non-signs. And the first point in your notes is, don't be deceived by non-signs. Look at verses 5-8 through with me. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in My name saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of, the, of, of birth pains. There, there are going to be difficult things, trials. These are just the normal parts of life that are not signs that the temple is about to be destroyed. Jesus, Jesus points out what some of these things are going to be. There are going to be false Christs that will rise. And many are going to be deceived by them. Jesus is saying, that does not mean that it's time to bail Jerusalem. Make sure that you're not deceived like many others will be. He also says that there are going to be wars going on. Don't be alarmed. Now, a little familiarity with the the, the history of of the Jews might help us to understand why they would be a little nervous about 
wars going on around them. And not just wars between the Jews and other people, but wars between, between their foreign oppressors and other nations. Just a little bit of history. Reading the Old Testament would lead us to, to understand why they would be a little nervous about this. Many of us have been concerned about the geopolitical ramifications of, of Russia invading Ukraine. What might this mean for us? I think most countries around the world have, have wondered that. Certainly the Jews would have been thinking with, with, with wars going on right in their proverbial backyard, well, maybe we need to leave Jerusalem. Jesus said the temple's going to be destroyed. Maybe we need to leave, the disciples might think. Jesus says, look, don't lose your mind about that kind of thing. That's a non-sign. That is not the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. It has to happen, but the end is not yet. And here, contextually speaking, all the contextual factors indicate that when Jesus says the end here, what he means is the end of the temple. He also says there's, there, there, there's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. Non-signs. These are not signs that the temple is about to be destroyed. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. It's not time. Now, why would Jesus give this kind of instruction? Why would He tell them, don't be alarmed, don't be deceived by non-signs? Why warn them not to get worked up about these things? Because preoccupation with what aren't actually signs that this destruction is, is imminent, believing that, 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 that destruction is coming any second when it isn't, might mean that they would abandon their mission prematurely. And that, that, that would be a real danger. Because Jesus, after He rises from the dead, He's going to give them a very serious mission that is, it, that is intended to be what they are all about, which is making disciples. Now, though the immediate context, the immediate referent of all these things, I mean, is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And though the destruction of the temple happened almost 2,000 years ago, God has predicted the judgment of all the world, which has not yet tempted, not yet occurred. Paul said in Acts 17.31, he said these words, He, God, has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The man by whom God will judge the world in righteousness, the man whom God has raised from the dead, is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that after making purification for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So yeah, after, after all of, of, of Jesus' work in life and death and resurrection, He ascended to heaven where even now, as we are here this morning, Christ waits until the day when He will come again to judge the world. And as we wait, as we wait for Christ to come again to, to, to judge the world, we also are susceptible to non-signs that that could happen at any second. Non-signs. Non-signs that might distract us from the mission that we've been given. Now here's a non-sign that I hear quite a bit. You ready? Let's see if you've heard this one too. Things are just getting so bad. I mean, I mean the, the world is getting so evil. The Lord must be coming any second. 
and, and, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, right? Because you, certainly compared to when I was a kid, things are bad. But that's a non-sign. It's a non-sign. Our, our resident historian, theologian, Pastor John, have a conversation with him. I think he would, he would say to you that, that uh, there were other centuries in history when man tolerated far worse atrocities than we do now. In a sense, we've not yet begun to defile ourselves compared to previous generations. I, I Honestly, I see nothing going on in the world today that leads me to think that, that this is the generation. Now, we should, we should live as if that's the case. We'll find that later in, in the chapter. In fact, we're getting, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We'll, 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 we'll get to that in a second. But, but um, that is a non-sign that... that Things are, things are getting really bad. Non-sign. Uh, another non-sign that I've heard over and over is wars and rumors of wars and increase, increasing natural disasters. Even though Jesus specifically says here, that's a, that is a non-sign. It was a non-sign 2,000 years ago that the temple was about to be destroyed. Non-signs. Don't be deceived and alarmed. And therefore, don't be distracted from the mission that we've been given. Again, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but let's go ahead and peek at the end of the chapter where, where Jesus is going. I won't tell anybody if you won't. We'll peek ahead at, at the end of the chapter. Let's go to verse 32. Chapter 13, verse 32. The Lord says, concerning that day or hour, this is the Lord's second coming, okay? Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. The idea is just be ready. Just be ready all the time. And as we'll see when we get there, the way to be ready, the way to be ready is to be about His business. You just keep your nose to the gospel grindstone. Which brings us to the next point. Remain gospel driven during persecution. Remain gospel-driven during persecution. Let's look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now remember again that the immediate context here is the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. So first, the Lord warns there's going to be persecution. There's going to be persecution prior to the destruction of the temple. It's layered throughout all these verses. Verse 9, they're going to deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my name's sake. Verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 13, you'll be hated by all, all for my name's sake. There's going to be persecution. That is, there's going to be persecution in and emanating from Jerusalem. 
Second, the Lord wants them to remain focused on the gospel in the midst of that persecution. How do we know that He wants them to remain focused on the gospel? Because in verse 10, He tells them the purpose being served by this persecution. He says the gospel must, be, must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Now that, that, that verse, verse 10, is nestled into the midst of the other verses about persecution, which indicates that God will use their suffering itself as a means of spreading the good news. And He wants them to keep their wits about them in the midst of that. Keep your head on straight as you're being persecuted. Understand why this is happening. It's happening so that the gospel will will spread. You're going to be mistreated. Keep your focus on the gospel, which is the whole point. Your suffering will cause the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Third, He wants them to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit for the appropriate words at the appropriate time. Look again at verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So again, you're going to suffer. Keep your head on straight that this is for the Gospel. And in the midst of that, trust the power of the Holy Spirit to give you what you need to deliver the Gospel at the right time. Don't, do not be overcome by anxiety. Fourth, He wants them to endure. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't fall away. Don't let the pressure and suffering cause you to fall away from faith in the living God. Continue to trust in the God of the Gospel All of this stuff that's going to happen is according to plan. It must happen before the destruction of the temple. Now, all of the stuff that Jesus is talking about, we see all of this happening in the book of Acts. Hold hold your finger here in Mark 13. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We could find multiple examples of all of these things happening in in Acts, but we, we have time only to look at just a couple of places. Let's begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter 4, we're still talking about Jerusalem. These, these events are, are taking place in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and as they, referring to the apostles, as they were speaking to the people The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now they're inquiring about a man that the apostles had healed the previous day. Now what we have just read in these first few verses of chapter 4, what we have just read about the apostles be, we've, we just read about the apostles being delivered over to the council to bear witness before them. In other words, we've just read a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 13:9. Jesus said, "This is going to happen, and here it has." Continuing in Acts 4:8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the people and elders." 
If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What, now what, what did Jesus say in Mark 13, 11? If you've still got your finger back there, you could flip over and see. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before Him what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go forward in Acts to chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Some of the apostles are arrested again. They're arrested again. Let's look beginning at chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to the men outside, to, to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. See, these apostles, it seems... It seems that they took Jesus' instruction in Mark chapter 13 to heart. They were beaten for the sake of the gospel and rejoiced that they might suffer for His name. And they, they, their, their, their suffering fueled their gospel work. The, 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 the council said, shut that up! And in Acts 5.42, look at, look at Acts 5.42 again, it says, 
every day in the temple. In the temple. That's boldness, people. That, that, that is the, the, the center of the storm. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Their suffering leads to the spread of the good news. We find other examples of, of these brothers and others being beaten later in the book in and around the temple and synagogue and the gospel spreads as a result. Should it surprise us? No, because Jesus said this is what would happen in Mark chapter 13. In X, I'm sorry, Acts 6 and 7, we read about Stephen's encounter with the Jewish leaders, which ends in his stoning death. So, so we've got this escalation from just beatings to now we have the first murder of, of, of a believer in Jesus Christ, followed immediately by this passage at the beginning of chapter 8. So look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8.1, and Saul approved of his execution, talking of Stephen's execution, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. See, the faithfulness of the believers to testify to the gospel under the pressure of persecution leads to the gospel's wider spread. And what we find as we continue to read the book of Acts is that it spreads not just out of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but eventually to the ends of the earth, or as Paul phrases it in Romans 16.26, the gospel is made known to all nations. Paul writes that in Romans 16, 26. The gospel has been, has been, has been, past tense, made known to all nations. Paul wrote that prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. According to Paul, Romans 16, 26, the gospel spread to all nations prior to the destruction of the temple. And it was a, dis, a direct result of the persecution of the church emanating from the temple in Jerusalem. That's why the temple couldn't be destroyed until then. In fact, if we're, if, we're, if we're reading Acts closely as, as we have been, as our brothers preached through it, Paul's own journey to go all the way to Rome to testify to the good news before the emperor was a direct result of persecution against him by the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul was arrested in the temple in Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, he's arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem, starts a chain reaction that leads him to Rome where he would preach the gospel. Now, what does all of this have to do again with the destruction of the temple? Jesus is saying this, the persecution of the church unto the spread of the gospel to all nations, this has to happen first before the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be ground zero for the persecution of the church that will drive the good news to the nations. The destruction of the temple won't happen until the gospel has spread. And that's why he says in Mark 13.10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Did that happen prior to AD 70? Again, Paul said it did in Romans 16.26. Once that persecution centered in Jerusalem had driven the gospel to the nations, destruction could come upon the temple in Jerusalem. Now, what about us? The temple in, in Jerusalem... Destroyed long ago. 
But the mission of proclaiming the gospel still stands. And so the exhortations that Jesus gave the disciples here are directive for us. Just as Jesus warned the disciples that that they would be persecuted for their association with Him, so also the apostles turned right around and gave us those same warnings. Let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Peter 4.12 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Very similar to what Jesus says to the apostles in Mark 12. Don't you be surprised when you're persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Paul writes something very similar in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be hated for His name's sake. And so what is our temptation in the midst of that suffering and mistreatment? It is at least, at least to become distracted, if not to positively avoid mistreatment by shutting our mouths. But the apostles call us to do what Jesus called them to do, which is the exact opposite. You may remember that First Peter was written to people in harm's way. Here's what Peter says that we're to be about in the midst of that fiery trial. 1 Peter 2.9 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Peter says to the church about what we're to be about? Not, not, silently believe the excellencies and the privacy of your closet and and not even whisper the excellencies so that we don't offend anybody. Proclaim those excellencies. Shout those excellencies. Make the name of Jesus known in the midst of the fiery trial. He's, He's talking to people who are in the midst of that fiery trial. Make the excellencies of Christ known in the midst of a contrary culture. And just three verses later, Peter writes this, this is 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the, uh, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is just another way of saying, proclaim the excellencies, not just with your words, but proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light with your conduct. Show who Christ is with the way that you live your life. Don't sabotage your speech by living a, an ungodly life. All this is so important that Peter just he, com, he continually repeats these ideas. Repeats them over and over in the book of 1 Peter. I want to give you again these things from one other passage. And, and keep in mind how this shows that what Jesus was teaching the apostles in Mark 13, they turn around and they give to us. That, that even though the, 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 the temple was destroyed long ago, These brothers have turned around and given them to us that they might be principles that govern our lives as we look forward to the final judgment. Here is 1 Peter 3.14 and following. 1 Peter 3.14 and following. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Elevate Christ as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For... Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see how He connects there our suffering with Christ? So look, you're, you're going to suffer for the Gospel. And you're doing that as you walk in the footsteps of Christ. Christ also suffered for sin. What about Jesus' exhortation in Mark 13, 13? Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, the apostles, they, they, they turn right around and they, they hand that to us over and over and over in the New Testament. We get that in Romans, in Galatians, in Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, Revelation. Just, it's like they just can't give it to us enough. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't fall away in the midst of a culture is putting pressure on you to recant your belief in Jesus Christ and to just follow after the things of the world. Don't do it. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, as, as, as you feel the pressure of the culture, the pressure of family, you know, Jesus, Jesus says here in, in Mark 13 that Family members are going to turn against family members. Some of them are they're going to kill family members. And, and we may not see that happening in our culture, but certainly some of us feel familial pressure to be quiet about Jesus and to, 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 to downplay this, this thing that is our life. They want it to just be a part of our life. As you feel the pressure of the culture, you feel the pressure of family, the pressure of neighbors, the pressure of co-workers, anti-gospel pressure to shut up, to, to whisper the excellencies, to, to make yours a private religion, to, to be some kind of like, like, like spiritual prepper sealed off from the world for the, for the prepper, preservation of self. Do you feel that pressure? Do you feel that pressure from social media and from the news and from, from everywhere around you? Do you feel the impulse to bow to that pressure? Kill that impulse. Kill that impulse by looking to Jesus, who even as He is saying these things, is, he's, he's giving this instruction as He's staring the cross in the face. Christ gave Himself. Christ didn't save Himself as the world is telling us to do. The world is say, saying to us, save yourself by being quiet. Christ is on the way to the cross to give Himself for the sake of our salvation. He's going to the cross to be utterly spent, poured out for us. Are we going to follow Him? Let us follow Him. Look to the, look to the apostles who, who, who pass that same instruction on to us even as they were also being poured out for the same gospel. And let us similarly be poured out. Let us be utterly spent for the gospel if we believe it. Let, 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 us, let us say with Paul, 
The, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. Do your worst. I know where I'm going. I'm going to shout the excellencies of Christ all the way to my end in this world because glory awaits. Let us do the work of the gospel until the very end. Let's be busy about His work. Let, and let, let, let's not be suckers for non-signs. Let's not be suckers for false Christs. Let's do the Lord's work until He returns. And, and when, when He returns, when He returns, let Him find us joyfully and profusely sweating under the delightful work of the gospel. Now, we're going to we're going to pray. We're going to spend a few minutes in silent reflection. And during that silent reflection, let us all before the Lord and by the direction of the Holy Spirit, consider what it is that He would have us to do with these things. Are there, are there places where we have been cowed by the culture? We have, we have been like those Bailing on Jerusalem in light of the coming judgment. Let us not be that way. Let us be like those eager to be poured out, completely spent, like Jesus, like the apostles, for a gospel that we believe in. Let's pray. Father, certainly we do feel the pressure of the culture around us and some of us even perhaps pressure within our own households or from distant relatives, extended family, co-workers, pressure to make ours a private religion and we are tempted to we're tempted to do that in a proverbial escape from Jerusalem. I pray, Father, that you would grant us to follow you as the apostles did, that we would welcome the suffering of the gospel, that we would pick up our cross and follow you, eager for the glory that awaits and knowing that it is by our continued proclamation of the gospel in the midst of persecution that the gospel will go forth. Help us to believe these things, Father, and help us to trust that your Holy Spirit will give us what we need in those moments. Help us to believe the Bible. Father, help us to truly believe the Bible and not just say that we believe the Bible, but Lord, let our let our, let our lives prove that we believe the Bible, that we trust you. We need your help in these things, of course. We ask that your Holy Spirit would energize us for these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.